0: 日本史
1: hey everybody welcome back to the samurai archives podcast this is chris as always and today is the first episode in a series that i'm calling tales of the samurai and uh, i guess the reason i'm going with that is mainly because i want to focus a little bit on narrative history and going into deep detail into subjects and when you're in a conversation this can be difficult there's uh, there's other benefits many benefits to having uh, a roundtable discussion but to actually get really deep in a particular subject unless you're doing an interview is pretty difficult so i wanted to try something different so i'm thinking maybe every two to three months i'll be able to put out one of these episodes but as for today we're going to talk about seppuku samurai suicide and uh, actually for this occasion and for these episodes i dropped some of that patreon money that our fine contributors offered up on this new microphone with a pop filter so thanks to the patrons for that and hopefully you can tell the difference But this just goes to show you that helping out the podcast on Patreon really helps the podcast. So please check out how you can help us and uh, the benefits you can snag over at patreon.com slash samurai archives. And I'm not going to lie, having a bunch of people willing to back us with their own money on Patreon is basically part of the motivation for me to put in what amounted to about, uh, I don't know, nine months of research across a couple books, at least 30 journal articles, took quite a lot to put this all together, and in front of me here I have about 41 pages of notes and talking points, so it should be interesting. Although I say nine months, I think a lot of that was actually just here and there when I had the time. The actual main portion of the research actually came in in the past three months or so, but still. So anyway, props to the patrons who made all this possible, and uh, hopefully we'll get more support going forward. That's all I ask. So here we go. In, uh, like I said, the first in what I hope will amount to many in-depth episodes in the Tales of the Samurai series. So, fair warning to everyone with a weak stomach, seppuku refers to the act of basically disemboweling yourself with a sharp object. So, be warned. Tackling some pretty dark material, and if the idea of stabbing yourself in the abdomen, dragging the blade across your stomach, spilling your guts on the floor, you know, if that kind of thing bothers you, you might want to reconsider listening. And uh, obviously, as seppuku is a form of suicide, I'll be going deep into modern suicide theory, something else that people might find a little disturbing. So consider yourself warned. And uh, for the rest of you, enjoy the ride. So like I mentioned, uh, seppuku is the act of cutting your stomach open with a knife or a sword or whatever sharp instrument is handy. Um, Or I guess if you're a poor ronin in Edo in the 1630s trying to con the E-Clan out of some coin, you can do it with a bamboo sword. But anyway, however you do it, your stomach gets cut open innards spill out, and depending on the time or place, you might be lucky enough to have someone lop your head off with a sword before you have to come to terms with the gravity of the situation. And uh, the term for the pretty invaluable person who cuts your head off in the middle of the whole piece of action is called the kaishaku. And as you can see, or hear, or at least imagine, it's a brutally inefficient way to kill yourself. Uh, There's a record of one man who severed both his large and small intestines and survived for about 15 hours, another who survived for about five hours, And yet another who lingered for 19 hours. So, lesson being, always bring a kaishaku. Remember, boys and girls, friends don't let friends commit seppuku without a kaishaku. Something to keep in mind. And one author even questions whether belly cutting can really even be considered suicide at all, since the stomach cut isn't technically a fatal wound. I mean, I get that, but unless someone stitches you up and gives you antibiotics, you're pretty much dead. But then again, thinking back on Tim Roth's character in Reservoir Dogs, maybe not. And uh, I should probably mention that uh, this samurai suicide can either be referred to as seppuku or harakiri, uh, otherwise known as harikari, I guess. The terms are basically the same thing, the only difference being that one uses the Japanese pronunciation and one uses the Chinese pronunciation. And if you're not familiar with Japanese, that's really not going to mean anything, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, When we say Chinese pronunciation, we're basically saying the Japanese version of ancient Chinese pronunciation whatever's followed from the past. So anyway, harakiri is a compound word, which directly translated would be stomach cut. That's literally what you're saying. Hara is stomach and kiri is cut. Seppuku, on the other hand, is the same two Chinese characters, but in reverse order. So instead of having stomach first, you have cut first, and then stomach goes second. So in other words, it's not a compound word. So seppuku basically means harakiri without actually using the Japanese words for stomach or cut. So basically, you're saying suicide instead of killed yourself, for example. So I found two sources that called the word seppuku a, and I quote, polite euphemism for harakiri. Uh, One was a book by someone with a PhD in Japanese studies from Cambridge, and the other was a master's thesis. So even though there was some heated discussion on the forum about the idea, someone got it from somewhere. I don't know. But it seems to me that it would be the difference between saying, like, Bob hung himself and Bob committed suicide. We all know what suicide means, what the word suicide means, but it avoids using a graphic depiction of what was actually done. And I've uh, also heard it tossed around in the past, although I didn't really find anything about this in any source I read, that seppuku is considered a polite version of the term harakiri. So anyway, it seems to be a theme. I don't know how accurate this is, but you see that here and there. Okay, so moving on. Now that we're in the uh, internet age, I probably don't have to point out that seppuku isn't as popular a pastime today as it was a few hundred years ago. Now, that being said, uh, there are various reports, uh, papers written on uh, hospital reports of harakiri. And uh, one hospital in Japan reported that between 2006 and 2008, there were 19 harakiri attempts. Uh, 63% were male, the rest were female. Uh, 18 out of 19 survived. So, like I said, brutally inefficient. And uh, for eight of them, it was their first recorded suicide attempt. And at least 16 of the 19 had a diagnosable psychopathology, which I'll I'll get to later, but in layman's terms, for the moment, just take from it that they were crazier than a shithouse rat. 12 were married, 15 lived with someone. I'm not sure why I'm rattling off these statistics. They're just here in my notes, and I just find statistics interesting, so hopefully you do too. More is always better, right? Right. I guess. But anyway, uh, so all these seppuku attempts were probably more due to mental illness than some sort of association with the samurai. I mean, that's probably a given, but I mean, obviously otherwise they would have used a kaishaku. But uh, it's far more common in Japan than in any other country, which shouldn't be surprising. Anyway, talking about sort of the modern seppuku, aside from crazy people, well... Regardless, if I'm not mistaken, the most recent example of what more or less fits the official definition of seppuku happened in 1999 when one Nonaka Masaharu, a manager at Bridgestone, which I assume is the tire company, committed seppuku to protest corporate restructuring. I mean, he damn well could have been crazy, but uh, I think by definition he accomplished seppuku, at least in spirit. At least that's the sources that I read. That's basically what they said. And then the runner up to that, of course, is author Yukio Mishima who committed seppuku in Tokyo in 1970. And if you want some insight into Mishima's mentality, all you really have to do is read his book, Patriotism. I actually recommend it. It's short, maybe 20 pages, and uh, really shines a light on his love affair with stomach cutting. Mishima's Patriotism is basically to stomach cutting what dulcet is to cannibalism. And if you don't get that analogy, then don't Google it. Um, But uh, as an aside, my uh, college professor... Her PhD advisor apparently was a friend of Mishima, and if I remember this, this is like 20 years ago, but apparently Mishima had befriended some foreign writers, and he was one of them. And Mishima mailed this person a letter right before he killed himself that, to me anyway, really gave the impression that his suicide was kind of a publicity stunt. Basically a way to make sure that his books would be remembered and uh, also be made internationally famous. And, you know, that's the impression I got from the from it anyway. And it is a little odd, too, because Mishima was a, a real right-wing Nutcase. So the fact that he was befriending foreign liberals is kind of an odd situation. So I don't know. It's it's a little weird. But uh, Mishima is an interesting guy, and uh, his life would probably make for a good podcast episode. But it would probably be a, a stretch thematically for this. So I don't know. Maybe. But if if you're interested, you should check him out. And again, check out Patriotism. Interesting book. And uh, actually, now that I think about it, on the subject of Mishima's Seppuku. I remember reading somewhere, and I I just couldn't figure out where it was, that he pretty much botched his own seppuku. He wasn't able to actually do it. He stabbed himself and, oh, it hurts or something. And then his kaishaku tried to take his head off, but just basically hacked his neck. And it was just a big clusterfuck, apparently. But I don't know. I couldn't find any details. I just remember reading that somewhere. So maybe that didn't happen. Maybe he stabbed himself and did it perfectly, and the kaishaku took his head off with one swing. I don't know. But just thought I'd throw that in there. And uh, so we'll definitely get into the history of seppuku. That's the whole point of the podcast. But before we do that, I really want to talk about the actual medical effects, because part of the question of what is it is the medical effects. And secondly, you know, seppuku is a really abstract concept. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, cut the stomach, preserve your honor, you know, whatever. But the reality is it's really painful, really messy, super gross, and it takes a real gargantuan effort to actually pull it off. And, you know, it's something that us modern, you know, us uh, high culture, modern humans don't really understand. So I think to uh, really get a handle on the the concept of seppuku, you just kind of got to get your hands dirty. So fortunately for you, I read the medical journal papers and looked at the photos of disemboweled dead for you. So I spared you that much at least. And uh, so the research I looked at, basically, it, it obviously it's based on modern stomach cutting suicides because there weren't any scientists observing seppuku back in the day so these are obviously not trained samurai cutting their stomachs so the damage may or may not have been exactly correspondent to a perfectly executed slice but uh regardless it's still a useful tool to see what it would have been like nonetheless and uh, there there were, I found at least three papers on this subject so it's out there I think there was actually more but uh without going into detail of the specific people that were covered in these papers I'll just give you the basic general idea Uh, As we know, if you've been listening up to this point, uh, you stick the blade into your left side, hold it with both hands, pull it across to the right, and then you twist the blade and cut upwards. And so when you actually do this, what happens? Um, Well, first off, I'm no expert on anatomy or physiology, so you're going to have to kind of bear with me here. So on the initial stab... The blade punctures the abdominal wall and uh, might catch the descending colon, depending on where you put the blade and, I guess, how long the blade is. And as you cut across, you'll cut through the greater omentum, which is basically like a, a sheet that hangs over the stomach and intestines, and I guess it kind of acts as an insulating thing. I don't know. Any doctors out there might have a better idea. Feel free to comment. But you cut through this omentum and probably end up lacerating or severing intestines You might cut the mesentery, which is what holds the intestines in place. In doing this, I assume this is what causes the intestines to kind of spill out. But through this process of cutting the stomach, you'll also potentially end up with a lot of vascular damage, which often results in death by way of hemorrhagic shock. And uh, that's how I found it described in two medical journals I looked at. So basically, uh, if you're lucky enough to sever some arteries, then you'll uh, bleed out. Otherwise, it might take a while. And I can present you some proof that it may take a while. The uh, modern harakiri suicides often show multiple lacerations to the intestines and mesentery that basically indicates that after the initial cut, the person continued to stab themselves in the stomach in an effort to end the pain and expire. And you also find cuts on the neck, arms, legs, or wrists done after cutting of the stomach, presumably for the same reason. And I'm not sure if you see that with the samurai who didn't have a kaishaku, but this is part of the reason they had a kaishaku because it's brutally inefficient. Now, if you really want to dive into this, take a look at the article by Morita and his companions called The Comparison of Characteristic and Clinical Features of Self-Inflicted Abdominal Stab Wound Patients in Japan, Simple Stab Wounds versus Harakiri Wounds. And then another article called Suicide by Harakiri, A Series of Four Cases by Dinuno and his cohorts. And that second one is the one with the photos. So you're warned. But uh, based on these photos, I think most of the time the intestines actually do spill out of the wound, so it's not a pretty sight. So now we've got the general definition of seppuku and sort of the medical implications. So I guess the next question is, why the hell would you do that? So first, I'll, I'll kind of go into an overview of it, and then I'll get into deep detail after. So the why is a two-part question. The First why is, why was it done? What situation would result in you doing it? And the second why question is, why that particular act? I mean, you know, why cut your stomach open instead of doing something less dramatic and painful? That question is hard to answer, and at this point, I don't think there is really a good answer. Uh, The going theory seems to be that medieval Japanese believed the spirit was held in the stomach, so I guess it has something to do with freeing your spirit from its gut basket And then uh, the the pain portion is the the austere sacrifice, probably popularized by Japanese Zen Buddhism. Uh, That's just a guess. But anyway, so let's deal with the first question first. Why was it done? Well, at the most basic level, and for a variety of historical and probably sociological reasons, it was considered the honorable way to end your life. And essentially, this changes depending on when in Japanese history you're talking about, but I'll get to that later. Uh, It was considered preferable to capture. Uh, It was a way to erase shame and a way to either show honor to a dead lord by following him into death or as a respectable means of protest against one's lord. Um, You know, kind of the the concept, I guess, of like the Buddhist monks who'd set themselves on fire to protest one thing or another um, during the Vietnam era, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Or for a specifically Japanese history-related example, you have Hirata Masahide, who was a senior advisor and vassal of the Oda clan, and he killed himself in 1553 by way of seppuku in protest of a young Oda Nobunaga's rebellious and wild ways. And this apparently had a huge impact on the young Nobunaga's life and got him to change his ways from rambunctious playboy to epic demon butcher of the Sengoku period, so way to go, Uh, (laughs) Masahide. Not sure he accomplished what he was setting out to do, but whatever. Anyway... So other things that called for seppuku include escaping the shame of public execution, because obviously only filthy dirt farming peasants are publicly executed. I mean, come on. And another reason, and this is a big one, allowing the warrior to choose the time and place of his own death. But uh, basically, the act of seppuku was an act reserved for samurai as another way to show how much better they were than everyone else. It was a symbolic privilege of the elite class. I guess it was a point of pride. And now when you think of seppuku, when you think of the actual act, you think of just like stab and cut. But uh, believe it or not, there were a whole lot of variations on seppuku. How you cut, how many times you cut, where you cut, what happens before, during, after you cut. It all depended on who you were, the era that you're killing yourself in. Was it the Edo period? Was it the Sengoku? And then why you were killing yourself. And so fortunately for us, the Japanese left oodles of manuscripts giving us detail on all of these things. So I'll go through each section here. So first off, there were four basic types of cuts. I mean, there were kind of more, but you'll kind of see my point here. And interestingly enough, they're all named after numbers. And uh, if you are familiar with the Japanese numbers, at least in the Chinese the Chinese characters, then you kind of get the idea. Um But anyway, I'll explain all this here. So the first one, which was the standard by the Edo period, was called the Ichimonji cut. So this is basically a single cut across the stomach. This is what you traditionally think of when you think of harakiri. The term Ichimonji refers to the kanji or the the Chinese character for the number one. So, you know, for those of you not in the know, in Japanese, the number one is basically written as a single horizontal line. And like I said, all the cuts in seppuku refer to the numbers that they look like. So Ichimonji starts with you stabbing yourself in the left side of the abdomen, a few inches below the rib cage, and dragging the knife straight across. The second type of cut is the Jumonji cut. And that doesn't refer to the Robin Williams movie or the remake with Dwayne The Rock Johnson. This is a cross-shaped cut, which basically looks like the kanji for the number 10. So how this is done is first you cut horizontally across the stomach, below the belly button, and then a vertical cut is added just above the groin or downwards from the solar plexus. And uh, fun fact, the first cut is not supposed to be too deep so your intestines don't spill out before you get a chance to add that second cut. And the third type of cut is Sanmonji cut. Guess what that is? That's three horizontal lines, which incidentally is how you write the number three in Japanese. And this is apparently the most difficult and thus impressive cut. And if you only happen to get through two of these cuts, you get nimonji, which are two horizontal lines. And the last type of cut is the hachimonji, which is two vertical cuts, which approximate the number eight in Japanese. And this one seems like it would take the most technical skill to pull off. I mean, even with the sanmonji cut, you're basically just cutting in the same direction three times. But uh, with the hachimonji cut, you are basically doing two vertical cuts on the opposite sides of your stomach. So, I don't know. It seems like it would be a little bit more effortful. But, uh, I mean, if you really want to be dramatic, you'd use the Yonmonji cut, which approximates the number four. I'm just kidding. That doesn't exist. But uh, it would make a badass cut. Just Google the number four in Japanese. Anyway, I'm I'm digressing. So, back to it. Uh, I guess, basically, you'd pick the best cut based on... I don't know which one would impress your audience, I suppose. And uh, keep in mind, this probably isn't an exhaustive list of cuts. These are just the ones that I found and are the ones most often mentioned. And, you know, actually thinking about it, I might have even mentioned five cuts. I don't know. One, two, three, eight. One, two, three, eight. Eh, I, I don't know. Anyway, these are the types of cuts. Now, seppuku is actually broken down into a bunch of categories, the the act of seppuku. And so what do I mean by categories? Well, you have two main overarching categories of seppuku, voluntary and involuntary. So everything that falls under the voluntary category is called jijin. And everything that falls under the involuntary category is called tsumebara. And so we'll start with the voluntary or jijin seppuku. And there are six basic types. So the first type of Jijin seppuku is jiketsu, which basically means self-determination. So this is the type of seppuku that uh, a defeated warrior would perform in the context of having been completely defeated in battle, uh, out of options, nowhere to run. So they perform a self-determined suicide, seppuku. So basically, a couple obvious examples of this would be uh, Otani Yoshitsugu at the Battle of Sekigahara. That's probably the most obvious, but uh, or uh, I mean, there's there's countless. I mean, Oda Nobunaga would probably typically fall under this Jiketsu situation, at least in pop history, because uh, it's actually questionable whether or not Nobunaga actually committed seppuku. Uh, there's no record one way or the other. He died in the fire at Honnoji, and uh, his body was never recovered. So the prevailing assumption, the historical assumption, is that he retired into the temple after holding off Akechi's men with his bow and arrow and committed seppuku. And, you know, since his body was never found, that's presumably what happened. But there's always the chance he just kind of jumped into the fire and died or got knocked out by falling timber, you know, so we don't really know. There's no way of really knowing. So the second type of seppuku is inseki, which is a voluntary seppuku where the samurai is taking responsibility for moral or legal blunders or the misconduct of his subordinates. A good example of this is the events surrounding the ill-fated Kiso anti-flood project that took place between 1753 and 1755. In 1753, prolonged flooding in the Nobi Plain in what is now Gifu Prefecture, and so it was widespread damage, and the bakufu decided to assign the anti-flood project to Satsuma, uh, most likely a thinly veiled attempt to bankrupt the Satsuma domain. I mean, pretty reasonable assumption. That's kind of what the bakufu did. And so this job entailed what amounted to a huge public works project, basically damming the Kiso, Ibi, and Nagara rivers. And initially, and understandably, the Satsuma samurai weren't interested in taking on such an obviously bad project, but they were actually talked into it by Hirata Yukie, a senior councilman of the Satsuma clan. So he basically presented it as a matter of honor, like, we'll show these Easterners what real samurai can do, And, of course, the Satsuma samurai, being proud as they are, bought into it. And the following year, a thousand of these Satsuma samurai headed east with their can-do attitude to give it a go. And they quickly came face-to-face with Murphy's Law. The 1,000 Satsuma samurai joined with 10,000 laborers from around the Gifu area. And uh, because of the flooding the previous year that they were there to take care of, there was barely enough food to go around, and heavy rains also made the projects extremely difficult. On top of this, the bakafu officials sent from Edo to supervise the projects basically bullied these proud Satsuma samurai at every turn, making their overworked and underfed lives even more miserable. And these supervisors from Edo even went so far as to forbid locals from selling goods and supplies to the Satsuma clan at a discount. So costs soared, more flooding occurred, and Hirata Yukie, the man who had talked the Satsuma samurai into this disaster, was basically stuck in the middle. And things didn't get any better. All in all, 84 satsuma samurai died, uh, 52 by suicide. The rest were by disease or accident, which I guess might sound reasonable for a medieval public works project, but by contrast, it's recorded that only two of the 10,000 laborers died. One drowned, and another one died with dysentery. So obviously, things were pretty. They, everyone was being rough on the satsuma samurai. 52 of the 84 committed seppuku, or harakiri. And even though that's how they died, they cut their stomachs, their deaths are officially recorded as kappuku, which means belly ripping. So because these suicides weren't sanctioned and they were essentially done in protest of the treatment at the hands of the bakufu, so the bakufu couldn't really legitimize these acts by calling them seppuku, so they used the term kappuku. And I mean, if you've listened to any of our Edo period podcasts, you know that uh, in the Edo period, bakufu was big on formality. Point being that poor old Hirata Yukie basically led the samurai he was responsible for into complete disaster. And uh, after the projects were completed, he was awarded various gifts by the bakufu, congratulated on the good job done by the satsuma samurai, etc, etc. And he declined the gifts, but accepted their thanks. And then he promptly committed seppuku the next day. He didn't leave a note, but uh, it's pretty much understood by all that he was taking responsibility for the financial and human toll of the projects that he felt, and probably justifiably, that He had personally brought down on the Satsuma clan. So basically it was uh, him taking responsibility for a moral blunder, which falls under the Inseki rubric. Okay, so on to the third type of voluntary seppuku, kanshi. And uh, kanshi is when the samurai commits seppuku as a remonstration or protest against wrong or immoral conduct of one's lord. So I mentioned Hirata Masahide earlier. That's an example of kanshi. Another example, I guess a movie example, would be Thirteen Assassins at the very beginning of the movie. Uh, And there's tons of other historical and in-movies, so I'm sure you're probably familiar with the concept. And uh, moving on to Type 4. Type 4 I found listed as Sacrifice. Didn't list the Japanese, but I'm assuming it's Gisei. But uh, anyway, this is when a lord commits seppuku in order to end hostilities and save his men or family or both. This happened constantly during the Sengoku period, usually at the hands of Oda Nobunaga, but uh, this gisei or sacrifice, sacrificial voluntary seppuku, was usually part of the terms of surrender. So, for example, Asai Nagamasa, who was defeated by Oda Nobunaga, falls under this type. Long story short, he was besieged by Nobunaga at Odani Castle, and under the terms of the surrender, he would commit seppuku and entrust his wife, who was also Nobunaga's sister, and his three daughters to Nobunaga. He had a fourth child, a son, who was put to the sword. So, you know, you can't have everything. But uh, this was 1573. And uh, probably the most, I don't know, I wouldn't use the word iconic, that's a bit odd, but the most, I don't know, to me it was the first one that came to mind, but it's the seppuku of Shimizu Muneharu. So in uh, 1582, Hideyoshi flooded Takamatsu Castle in Bichu Province uh, during a siege as part of the Oda incursions into Mori territory, and uh, Muneharu was forced to surrender. And Hideyoshi agreed to spare the entire garrison, provided that Muneharu commit seppuku. He agreed, and subsequently committed seppuku on a boat, basically in the newly flooded area in front of the entire Oda army. The next type of voluntary seppuku is memboku, or saving one's face. This type of seppuku is committed in order to prove one's innocence and save one's honor, especially when a samurai was wrongly and unfairly accused of a crime or misconduct of which he was innocent. Travis actually dug up some probable examples for me. This was a tough one to fill, but uh, most of the examples were scholars who were persecuted for dangerous or subversive ideas, uh, at least dangerous and subversive from the point of view of the Tokugawa bakufu anyway. Um, one example is Takano Choi, uh, who is a scholar of Western studies. Takano studied under Philip Franz von Siebold and was tossed in prison in 1839. While he was there, he wrote a book called A Short Record of Meeting with Misfortune, which uh, actually sounds like an alternate translation of Mein Kampf, but uh, it's actually an examination of the history of Western knowledge from the Sengoku period until the 1830s. But for whatever reason, that was completely left out of the title. But uh, anyway, he eventually escaped prison and committed seppuku, presumably to save face in order to protest his innocence and save his honor something like that oh and you know actually i have another example of memboku seppuku to save face so there's a story uh, from the edo period about a samurai captured during the battle of sekigahara and uh, apparently fought for the losing side and he was captured so the story goes that he was threatened with torture but he balked and said that he'd never give up the whereabouts of his commander and all the samurai present were so impressed with this guy that they basically let him go And then, of course, in honorable samurai fashion, he immediately went to a temple and committed seppuku out of shame due to his lenient treatment. I'm not really sure how true this particular story is. And since it dates from the Edo period, there's always the chance that it was a fabrication used as a parable to teach impressionable young Edo period samurai how to be honorable just like they used to be back in the days of yore. So I don't know. But I did find that an interesting story. And I guess maybe kind of typical of what we assume when we think of, of samurai who kill themselves out of shame. Now, lastly, we have Junshi, which probably is one of the more recognizable forms of seppuku to the layperson. Uh, This is basically when one commits seppuku to follow their lord to the grave. This actually was a particularly popular and also troublesome thing during the Edo period. Uh, Basically, it was peacetime, and the samurai were deprived of occasions to show their martial valor and loyalty to the lords, so many of them felt an acute need to show their loyalty at the time of death of the lord and obviously this would cause a lot of experienced and capable men to kill themselves and it did so the government got annoyed and just outlawed it and during the Edo period thousands of samurai killed themselves this way and uh, as always the 47 ronin comes up when you talk about Junshi but that'll be saved for a future podcast because it's worthy of its own episode and not quite as clear-cut and dried as you'd think but I'll get to it in another episode An example that is particularly relevant to this episode is the eventual fallout from the Junshi that followed after Nabeshima Tadanao, who was the son of the Lord of Saga Province in Kyushu, died, uh, I believe in 1635. The Nabeshima had a rich history of Junshi, and in the case of Tadanao's death, eventually five of his friends committed Junshi, four up front and then a fifth a year later. Now when his son, Nabeshima Mitsushige, eventually came to power in 1661, he implemented a junshi ban. And interestingly enough, he accomplished his ban on junshi by basically decreeing that all sons, brothers, and nephews of someone committing junshi would in turn be given a death sentence of seppuku. And it worked, and as fate would have it, one of the saga samurai affected by this was none other than Yamamoto Tsunetomo, the grumpy old fuck who wrote the Hagakure. He was denied death by junshi after his lord died, so he took the Buddhist name Jocho, and spent the rest of his years bitching and moaning about the state of the samurai class. So, as you can see, the Hagakure, the book that everyone not Japanese worships, wasn't written by an insightful warrior poet, but an angry old man with a chip on his shoulder. He's basically your angry uncle yelling at you to get off his fucking lawn. But I digress yet again. So, one interesting factoid about Junshi is that, oftentimes, the samurai tried to make it as prolonged and miserable as possible, basically as a way to show how devoted they are to their dead lord. They'd decline the kaishaku, or hack and slash their stomachs apart, and pull out their intestines, all sorts of neat stuff. Now, while we're on the subject of categories, junji itself can be broken down into further distinctions depending on the timing. So sakibara means preceding your lord into death, basically you go before the lord, and atobara, a delayed seppuku where you follow your lord into death after some time has passed. And then there's oibara, where you immediately follow your lord into death. And now to make this branching tree even more complicated, oibara can be broken down into three subtypes depending on the actual motive of the samurai. There's lombara, shobara, and gibara. So lombara is committed by a samurai to save face by imitating his peers who are committing junshi, sort of the ultimate peer pressure. Shobara is calculated for future benefits to the family of the samurai by showing how honorable and loyal he was to his lord. And Gibara is Junshi committed with a deep sense of loyalty and indebtedness to the lord. So this is like the ideal, basically. Gibara is what you, I guess, want everyone to think you did when you kill yourself after your lord dies. I mean, unless they leave a note, I'm not really sure how you figure out the motives though, but they got names for them. And then as an added bonus, you have Mata Junshi, which is basically a Junshi domino effect where high-ranking samurai commit Junshi and then some of his retainers commit Junshi and then some of their retainers commit Junshi. It's like a medieval version of a pyramid scheme. An interesting side note here. Once the Junshi-ben was in full effect, another option taken by samurai was to cut off a finger and toss it into the cremation fire of the lord. So basically still a sacrifice, but a little more symbolic. More symbolism, less blood, I suppose. Okay, so that's essentially it for voluntary types of seppuku. So now on to tsumebara, which is involuntary or more accurately, forced seppuku. So falling under the rubric of tsumebara are three types. The first one is munembara, and this is described as a type of seppuku that is forced by trumped up charges or some other type of one-sided penalty. The only example that I actually saw labeled as such was Lord Asano from the 47 Ronin story, but Again, I'm going to have to do a podcast on this at some point because the Tale of the 47 Ronin really isn't that clear-cut. And he was—he didn't necessarily have to kill himself due to trumped-up charges. But anyway, I'll, I'll hopefully get to that in a future podcast. Anyway, the second type of force seppuku is called funbara, which basically means seppuku where the samurai dies with total unrepentance and spite. And I could not come up with any specific examples of this. I looked around, I didn't find anything, but I guess I'd have to imagine that most samurai who faced memboku probably experienced some funbara. Seems reasonable to me. Um, the last type of force Seppuku is keishi. And this is actually your basic run-of-the-mill death penalty for criminal offenses. So if you're a samurai who does something bad and you're forced to kill yourself, this is considered keishi. So just plain old vanilla death penalty. Now, by the way, going back to stomach cuts for a second, the types of cuts, it seems that by the late 18th century, the old style seppuku cutting like the Jumonji and all that had come to be considered unrefined and barbaric when compared to the refined and dignified cutting, or even pretend cutting, of contemporary 18th century seppuku. And as far as pretend cutting, I'll get to that in a second, but uh, apparently the ichimonji went out. The dignified way of committing seppuku during the Edo period was a single slice across the stomach, followed by a kaishaku. Okay, so I've basically talked about the medical stuff. I've talked about the types of cuts, talked about the different types of seppuku. Let's talk about the seppuku protocol. How does the whole thing play out? Now, this is all from the Edo period, so keep that in mind. This doesn't have anything to do with the samurai who are actually fighting battles and cutting their stomachs on the battlefield. This is after it had all been codified and protocolized, or whatever the verb is. Anyway... Apparently, the first protocols weren't even written until the 1520s, but none of these actual survi- actually survive. so everything that we have comes from the Edo period. So originally, you know, the samurai just pretty much cut their stomachs before they were captured or defeated, just <clears throat> done. Um, after the 1520s, manuals comprised instructions for Kaishakuna's assistants uh, rather, actually rather than for the person doing the stomach cutting. So there were more instructions for the person who was going to cut their head off than the person doing the actual cutting, which is pretty important that you get right. So I guess I can buy that. Uh, one of the manuals is called Main Points of Stomach Cutting, seppuku mokuroku. This came from the early 18th century during the Edo period. And then there was even one written by a samurai called Thoughts on Belly Ripping in 1772. And actually various other manuals, for example, Records of Suicide by Sword, Rules for Stomach Cutting, Decapitation Method, Stomach Cutting and Decapitation. Real pick-me-ups, telling you either how to cut yourself or if you're the head cutter how to cut the head off. So like I said, the actual seppuku ritual, uh, as it was codified in the Edo period, uh, is very scripted. So it starts with announcing the sentence to the condemned. So... The sentence of Seppuku is delivered by messenger, and it's supposed to be kept brief and spoken in a firm voice. They actually state that. Must be said in a firm voice. Reason for that order was to inspire courage in the condemned man. And uh, apparently, by all involved, he's supposed to be considered dead from the moment the sentence is passed. Now, step two in Seppuku 101 is choosing the location. Uh, the location is supposed to be chosen by those in charge, typically either the grounds of a temple or the place where the condemned man is being held, or in jail. Senior-ranking samurai may cut their bellies outside, usually in a garden. Uh, low-ranking samurai should be forced to commit seppuku in their place of confinement. And as a side note, for whatever reason, being forced to kill oneself in a superior's house is considered demeaning, which I don't really get that, but you know, whatever. I feel like, you know, if they're giving you a place to do it, you should be thankful, right? I don't know. But uh, the third step in the seppuku ritual is the preparation for the place you'll be conducting the seppuku. Obviously, for a low-ranking samurai, not much was required. Apparently, if it's done outside, they just pick a spot, dig a hole for the head to fall into, and that was it. Uh, For the higher-ranking samurai conducting a seppuku outside, they laid out a bunch of mats, which creates a path to the place for the seppuku. And they would keep it dimly lit, which I'm not... Quite sure what they mean, since they're doing it in the morning. But you know, it seems it'd already be light outside. But anyway, maybe they just wouldn't use any extra lamps or candles or what have you, and they'd also get incense ready to burn to cover the smell of death. So you know, they they get all their bases covered, and, and things actually get more complicated for high-ranking samurai. But it's essentially the same idea, um, at least. Uh, but at least you know, unlike the low-ranking samurai, they get a basket for the head to fall into instead of a hole in the ground. So that's something. Now, the choice of seppuku weapon is obviously important. Typically, they'd use a sword of about 10 inches for cutting the stomach, basically a wakazashi. they take the blade out of the hilt and wrap the handle with cloth. I'm not really sure why they did that. I'm assuming that it's to sort of soak up the blood so it's, you don't lose your grip on it. But hey, maybe it just makes it easier to clean when you're done. I don't know. But samurai were also expected to keep a proper seppuku robe in their household, which I have to assume is a white kimono because that's what you always see. Um, so I guess they just kept one in hand just in case. And these other prescribed rules surrounding seppuku are rules for bathing and shaving of the head before the seppuku ceremony, rules on what sort of foods or teas will be served to witnesses who will be attending. Sounds like a party. And uh, I I find this odd, but uh, family members are not supposed to attend the ceremony, which I didn't know that. And the kaishaku himself, that's the head remover, if you remember, is responsible for making sure that the ceremony goes smoothly. You don't want a breach of decorum such as the head rolling around or splattering blood on the witnesses, so you need a professional. And as a side note, the kaishaku would apparently never use their own sword. I'm not really sure why. I didn't didn't mention why, but uh, I'm guessing it probably has something to do with the Shinto ideas of purity. But that's literally just a guess on my part, so don't take my word for it. Okay, so the actual seppuku procedure itself starts when you stab yourself in the left side and drag the blade across your stomach. And apparently it's recommended to pull the knife across your stomach with your right hand palm down. So I'm sitting here with my pen in my right hand against my left side and oh, don't worry the cap's on, I'm not crazy. But I'm trying to figure out if the palm up or down is best and palm down doesn't feel as natural, but I feel like palm down, you could pull easier, I don't know, and maybe better for the downward cut because you're pushing... I'm not sure. I don't. I don't. I don't know how leverage works when you're cutting the abdominal wall. But uh, you know what? As an illustration, I'll have my new research assistant Yoshi demonstrate for us the nine steps outlined in this seppuku manual. So um, I got yeah right there on the, the tatami mat. Um, I, I got Yoshi in exchange for some rekishi gunzo books from a well-known Japanese history author. Uh, can't name him for legal reasons. But uh, no, no, no. Here. F- use my knife. Okay, um no no no, right. Palm down. Palm palm down. No no, I'm not going to act as Kaishaku. Um anyway, so we're going to go through the steps here. Okay, you ready? All right. Okay, number 1, pull the table closer. Yeah. 2, pick up the sword. 3, Press the tip of the blade to the left side of the abdomen. 4. Cut above the navel. 5. Force it across the right side. 6. Turn the angle of the blade 90 degrees. 7. Make a downward cut. 8. Use both hands if necessary. Force the blade down below the navel. Nine. remove the blade and rest the sword on the right knee hmm? oh you'll be fine walk it off all right there you have it amazing yoshi everybody okay so now that we've kind of gone over everything from the point of view of the seppuku doer let me talk about how the kaishaku fits into all of this the, the kaishaku stands to the rear left it's, it's always described as rear left and it's up to the Kaishaku to choose the best moment to strike. So he has that responsibility. But generally speaking, there are three moments that the Kaishaku can choose from. first moment is when the doomed samurai reaches for the blade. Hand goes out. Off goes the head. Now this actually becomes the preferred way to go through with the seppuku ceremony during the Edo period. Second moment is when he points the blade to his belly. The samurai is ready to cut. Maybe he looks a little nervous. So the Kaishaku ends it there. Just like that. And the third moment is when he makes the initial incision. The samurai did his due diligence, stabbed himself, so the kaishaku ends it before things get messy. So it seems that during the Edo period, more likely than not, or most likely, you're not going to finish the actual cutting. The kaishaku is going to take your head before that. And of course, in this little scenario here, best case is that the head comes off cleanly. But, uh, you know, it does note if the sword gets stuck, the kaishaku should cut in a sawing motion until the head comes off. And once the head is off, the seppuku is complete. And the manuals also give various rules on how to handle the severed head, how to show it to the witnesses correctly, displaying the head. And there actually seems to be some question whether or not you should take the head off cleanly or leave a flap of flesh to keep the head from rolling away. For the most part, from what I saw, it seems that you're meant to take the head clean off. Uh, One source states that Lord Asano from the 47 Ronin had his seppuku botched. The kaishaku left his head attached by some skin. So that was considered a negative. But others say that it's proper to leave some skin so that the head doesn't roll away. So I don't know which is preferred. But based on my research, I'm leaning towards the head being removed completely. I mean, they set baskets or dug holes as a rule to catch the head. So presumably that was acceptable. And it's, it's always mentioned to, to cut the head off. So anyway, that's what I came up with. Now, another interesting thing to note, uh, something that I want to point out here, is that the dagger in seppuku ceremonies was mostly replaced with a fan starting in the late 17th century in general, but also to keep weapons out of the hands of dangerous rebellion leaders or other people who might try to take advantage of having access to a dagger. Some contemporary philosophers actually questioned whether this could even really be considered seppuku at all, since it was basically an execution. You know, the, the samurai reaches out and where the dagger normally would be, they're reaching for a fan. And then at that point, they get their head cut off. So, Or sometimes they actually would do like a mock seppuku where they would touch the fan to their side and then get their head cut off. So, yeah, basically it, it kind of became more ceremonial than anything. And speaking of using the fan, this was actually also a strategy used when a child was to commit seppuku. They'd uh, tell him he's going to first practice with a folded paper fan. And then uh, after he practices with a the fan, then they'll give him a knife. So when the kid reaches out for the fan, the kaishaku whoosh, takes off his head. And uh, speaking of children, as I go off further onto a tangent here, uh, in Aizu in the 19th century, the house codes included the practice of seppuku for children and the uh, child's mother was required to oversee the practice. And apparently this training was effective because about 230 women and children killed themselves in 1868 during the the fall of the Tokugawa bakufu. So, in other words, the Aizu samurai were gangsters. Anyway, so back to the topic at hand. At this point, I think any reasonable person could start to wonder if all the details and bravado regarding the act of seppuku is all hyperbole, made up by the samurai just to sound like they're better than the dirty-faced peasants, or if this is all real. I mean, I've been uh, involved tangentially, at least in Japanese history for like 20 years. And people always like to talk about things like, oh, they were terrified when they were going to commit seppuku or, oh, they were peeing themselves as they ran into battle and it was terrifying and da, 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 da. I mean, I, I don't really know what the modern obsession is with trying to put our values and experiences onto historical cultures and people, but I see it a lot. It's fucking annoying. I mean, maybe they were, maybe they weren't. But I mean, the point is, it's a different culture. It's a different time. Uh, in fact, I want to point out episode, I think 124 with Dr. Jesse Workman that I did where we talked about this specifically, how their experience of reality is completely different than ours. So we can't really overlay our values and our culture and our beliefs onto them. It just doesn't make sense. But we always, everyone forgets that. It, I mean, I had, it took me a long time to actually realize that, but anyway, again, going off and on tangent, but, uh, I think it's episode 124. Philosophy of Gods and Monsters is the name of the episode, so check it out. But, uh, you know, point being here that uh, there are at least three examples, I think actually maybe even four, and then that's not even counting what Louis Freud may have written in the 16th century. But, you know, again, there's like at least four examples of Westerners who witnessed actual seppuku suicides. And in every case, the Westerners were impressed with the bearing, the pride, the decisiveness of the samurai who were condemned to die. You know, they didn't bring back stories of, of men crying and, and, and weeping in fear as, as they tried desperately to stab themselves and, you know, nothing pathetic like that. The samurai who killed themselves were, were decisive. And this impressed the Westerners. So, in fact, one account by a Frenchman shows that the samurai condemned to die were actually quite fearless and unrepentant. And uh, this particular Frenchman describes the tearing guts out aggressively to freak out the witnesses and apparently did a pretty good job at that. So that one's out there. I, I don't remember the name of the person who wrote it, but basically if you look up, uh, if you do a Google search for like the French delegation who witnessed the seppuku, you'll probably find it. Apparently they were, they were pretty freaked out by the whole situation. But uh, one, of, one of my favorites is a seppuku witness by Ernest Satao. And he, he writes about this in, in very good detail to really kind of give you an idea of what it was like to witness a seppuku. So I want you to listen to this. Okay, take it away, Ernie.
2: We were guided to the Buddhist temple of Vaifukuji at Hyogol, arriving there at quarter to ten. Strong guards were posted in the courtyard and in the antechambers. We were shown into a room where we had to squat on the matted floor for about three quarters of an hour During this interval we were asked whether we had any questions to put to the condemned man and also for a list of our names. At half past ten we were conducted into the principal hall of the temple and asked to sit down on the right hand side of the dais in front of the altar. Then the seven Japanese witnesses took their places. After we had sat quietly thus for about ten minutes footsteps were heard approaching along the veranda. The condemned man. A tall Japanese of gentleman-like bearing and aspect entered on the left side, accompanied by his kaishaku, or best man, and followed by two others, apparently holding the same office. Taki Zenzaburo was dressed in the blue kamishimo of hemp and cloth, and the kaishaku wore battle surcoats. Coming before the Japanese witnesses, they prostrated themselves, the bow being returned, and then the same ceremony was exchanged with us. Then the condemned man was led to a red sheet of felt cloth laid on the days before the altar. On this he squatted, after performing two bows, one at a distance, the other close to the altar. With the calmest deliberation he took his seat on the red felt, choosing the position which would afford him the greatest convenience for falling forward. A man dressed in black with a light grey hempen mantle then brought in the dirk, wrapped in paper, on a small unpainted wooden stand and with a bow placed it in front of him. He took it up in both hands, raised it to his forehead and laid it down again with a bow. This is the ordinary Japanese gesture of thankful reception of a gift. Then in a distinct voice, very much broken, not by fear or emotion, but as it seemed reluctance to acknowledge an act of which he was ashamed, declared that he alone was the person who on the 4th of February had outrageously at Kobe ordered fire to be opened on foreigners as they were trying to escape, that for having committed this offence he was going to rip up his bowels and requested all present to bear witness. He next divested himself of his upper garments by withdrawing his arms from the sleeves, the long ends of which he tucked under his legs to prevent his body from falling backward. The body was thus quite naked to below the navel. He then took the dirk in his right hand grasping it just close to the point, and after stroking down the front of his chest and belly, inserted the point as far down as possible, and drew it across to the right side, the position of his clothes still fastened by the girth, preventing our seeing the wound. Having done this, he with great deliberation bent his body forward, throwing the head back so as to render the neck a fair object for the sword. The one Kaishaku who had accompanied him round the two rows of witnesses to make his bows to them, had been crouching on his left-hand side a little behind him, with drawn sword poised in the air from the moment the operation commenced. He now sprang suddenly and delivered a blow, the sound of which was like thunder. The head dropped down onto the matted floor, blood from the arteries pouring out and forming a pool. When the blood vessels had spent themselves,
1: all was over. See, that's pretty impressive. And uh, A. B. Mitford was also witness to the same seppuku, and he gave a very similar account. And I think that you can find that in *Tales of Old Japan* by Mitford. I think. Sorry, I'm going off memory right now, but uh, it's available online, and uh, so it's not really worth reading here because it's it's essentially the same idea as, as sathau's version. But in both cases, they mention the noble bearing of the samurai, uh, his very calm and deliberate demeanor. I mean, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I'm going to play a clip of a lecture here that I think really sums this up.
3: This is a behavioral sign that is characteristic of the moments and the minutes before a human does something that meets the following criteria. Daunting, difficult, fearsome, requires resolve and concentration. That's what people look like when they're about to give a a piano concert. They don't blink much. They're focused. They're wooden in their expression because they're about to do something daunting and fearsome, and it requires resolve and focus. When you're about to box somebody for the world championship, that's what you look like. And when you're about to kill yourself, that's what you look like because death by suicide Despite all of its differences from those things like boxing or concert, piano, despite all those differences, suicide's daunting and it's fearsome and it requires intent and it requires concentration and resolve. And because of all those things, you can't do it unless you get into a state like this where you're focused and able to confront and stare down the deep-seated fear that will confront you should you try to end your own life, no matter what the method and no matter what the means. It's a very instinctually fearsome thing to do. I'm not going to claim that it's courageous in any sense. I don't believe that. But I do believe it takes fearlessness. It takes a fearlessness of the physical toll and of death itself, to be able to enact one's own death. The people who we lose have learned somehow or another not to blink, not to flinch. And that's been a big point of this theoretical model that I'm going to share with you, is how in the world do people work up to that state, to get to that very unnatural state to where they can ignore The extremely strong self-preservation instinct that's in us all, all creatures across eons and eons and eons of evolution have that deep within their bones, within their cells, and within their souls.
1: Pretty intense, huh? That's from a lecture by Dr. Thomas Joyner, an expert on suicide. I'll put the link on the podcast page, and I'm going to get way deep into this later on, but I wanted to drop that clip here while Sato's description is fresh in your mind because it really fits. And, uh, you know, anyway, as you can see, the, the samurai, at least described by witnesses to their deaths, weren't what we'd consider normal people who were disturbed by what they had to do, what they were facing. And in many cases, if not most cases, during the Bakumatsu period in particular, the samurai relished the chance to commit seppuku in front of an audience. So, again, please... If you're one of these people that go on and on about, oh, they were terrified when they were going to commit seppuku or, oh, they were peeing themselves as they ran into battle and it was terrifying and just, just stop, stop. I mean, I don't know if I'm going to have a chance to get into it today. I don't know if I'm going to have the time, but psychologically, culture, time and place all have a hand in what we find terrifying, what we find acceptable, what we find common. Culture has an impact on these things. So just keep that in mind. It's important to remember, particularly if you're interested in history. I know I'm beating a dead horse, so. I mean, okay, sure. A baseborn Edo fishmonger probably would freak out if they were told to cut their stomach, but the samurai lived in a different world than them and us. And, you know, again, I'm going to have to do this. i got to plug that episode. Episode 124, I'm pretty sure, is the episode. I mean, that's my, that's, I really find that topic interesting. And I was really glad I got to do that episode. You know, just like any culture in another time or place, the samurai were living in a different reality, and that's, really easy to forget or i should probably say that most people don't even think of it in the first place and that was the reason i did that episode yes we're all people but culture time and place cause you to experience reality differently all right i will leave the horse as is moving on all right so i've covered all aspects of the act now let's get into the history that's why you're here right so uh It's unlikely that uh, the aboriginal Japanese had anything to do with uh, starting seppuku. And hey, while I'm plugging back episodes of the podcast, if you need a refresher on the origins of the Japanese, download episode 10. That covers it in detail. That was another favorite of mine. It was a really fascinating episode. So, yeah. Anyway, the idea that the native aboriginal Japanese probably had nothing to do with seppuku comes from Andrew Rankin's book, Seppuku. Right there in the title of the book. He mentions that they really didn't have swords in Japan until the 5th century. Now I talked to our Kofun period expert, Joseph, who was in the podcast at the very beginning and who is just about to get his PhD in archaeology at Osaka University. I hope I got that right. Pretty sure I did. But apparently iron swords started to be imported into Japan in the first century AD uh, during the Yoyoi period. And uh, this was after the, you know, quote unquote, Aborigines were more or less pushed out of the home provinces. But swords themselves weren't really established in Japan until around the 5th century. I I guess that's when they started forging them on their own. I'm going to have to get Joseph on the podcast here at some point. But anyway, since a lot of things about Japanese culture came from China, it kind of makes sense to look to ancient China to find examples of stomach-cutting behavior. And you know what? There really isn't much beyond a few random legends. The majority of of martial suicides, suicides during wartime, battle, etc., are... Warriors stabbing each other to death, or defeated warriors leaping into fire to avoid capture. And, I mean, you can look around the world at other cultures, but as far as I know, as far as I've found, there isn't anything in particular about belly cutting anywhere. What you do find, like I mentioned, is suicide for all the typical warrior reasons, to avoid capture, avoid shame. Us is pretty rampant along all warrior cultures until you get to the medieval European knights. But martial suicide is common, cutting the stomach is definitely not. And, you know, based on all this, I think it's safe to say that seppuku is an idiosyncrasy exclusive to Japan. So where did it actually come from, you ask? Short answer, no one really knows. I mean, there, there really is no evidence of the first. There's only some literary references. Uh, but what we do know is that the first Japanese record of anything resembling seppuku comes from the Harima Fudoki, which is one of, the, it's one of the five remaining out of what were originally 66 provincial historical records. And this particular fudoki details the history, geography, and culture of Harima province, which is modern-day Hyogo prefecture. And according to legend, as stated in the Harima fudoki, the goddess Aomi cut her belly open and jumped into a swamp in a rage after a fight with her husband, Hananami. And this particular swamp was named Harasaki, which basically means stomach cut. And I don't know the exact date that this was written, but it seems to have been around 716 AD... I believe, and there are no other mentions of anything like harakiri or anything resembling it in any other surviving fudoki. You know, granted there are a lot that are probably gone forever, so we'll never really know, but also the kojiki or nihon shoki also don't mention anything about stomach cutting. So after this goddess cut her stomach, the next description of disembowelment that we find happened around 250 years later, around 988 or 989, kind of depending on the source. But basically the story goes that an aristocrat by the name of Fujiwara Yasusuke, who was otherwise known as Hakamadare, turned to a life of crime and became a notorious and charismatic thief who terrorized the Kyoto countryside. So once the law caught up with him and he had no other avenue of escape, he slid his stomach and defiantly pulled out his guts. Ironically, this defiance didn't kill him right away. He died under the care of a doctor the next day, but that's the second description of seppuku in Japanese history that we're aware of. And this tale was actually related in two different records written a couple hundred years after the fact. The Zoku Kojidan from about 1219 AD and the Konjaku Monogatari from 1140 AD. And it's probably safe to assume this is legend, but basically, that aside, the possible origins of the most honorable samurai acts came from a deranged goddess and a criminal. So go figure. And apparently Edo period scholars actually had a hard time with this. Apparently they didn't really like that idea that it was started by a woman and a criminal. And aside from these probable legends, well, I mean, in the case of the goddess, obvious legend. I mean, come on. Anyway, there are no records prior to the Heian period aside from these involving belly cutting, so... And actually, until the Heian period, the preferred method of suicide was apparently poison. Okay, so Edo period scholars looking for the martial roots of seppuku look to Minamoto no Tametomo, who died in 1170. He rips open his stomach while standing when cornered by pursuing warriors and threw his intestines at the enemy. By the way, throwing of guts is a theme that comes up over and over again. I, I don't know what's up with that, but throwing of guts is pretty popular. But you know, in this particular case here, the actual veracity of the story is questionable. I mean, first off, the Hogan Rebellion is a war tale, which basically is a f- fictionalized version of history, sort of like their version of the Taiga drama. Case in point, the earlier versions of the Hogan Rebellion war tale actually had only Tomo cutting his stomach, but then by the 16th century, the new versions of the tale had everyone participating in the belly cutting. Horsemen, attendants, guards, etc. And then at this point, seppuku seems to have evolved from an accepted method of suicide to the expected method, as the war tales like this played up the drama and epicness of it. Like I said, usually embellished with the recitations of Buddhist verse or impromptu off-the-cuff poetry and some gut flinging. Anyway, so Tametomo is the archetype that's talked about and lauded endlessly going forward. Basic and short version of this story is that Tametomo was exiled to an island which, fortunately for him, had a population willing to follow him. So he brought them all under his leadership and from there extended his power to the surrounding islands and then began causing more trouble for the emperor. The emperor in turn sent 520 ships to apprehend him, but Tametomo chose to die rather than be captured. He put his nine-year-old son to the sword and then, as I mentioned, committed seppuku standing up, presumably as a fuck you to the emperor. By the way, Tametomo is the guy who's supposedly so good with a bow that he was able to sink multiple ships by hitting them below the waterline with an arrow. I mean, if they were inflatable rafts, okay, I I can see that. But, you know, otherwise I kind of have my doubts. You know, war tales and all that. So another popular seppuku incident came in 1180 at the Battle of Uji between the Taira and the Minamoto. Taira troops had cornered Minamoto troops, including Minamoto no Yorimasa, near the Byoduin temple. And Yorimasa was apparently hit in the knee by a Taira arrow, in- incapacitating him. Arrow to the knee? Why does that sound so familiar?
0: I used to be an adventurer like you, and I took an arrow in the knee.
1: Anyway, he retreated into the temple and committed seppuku. And this was his death poem. I always like this one. Like a rotten log half-buried in the ground, my life, which is not flowered, comes to this sad end. I like that. And on the subject of uh, war tales and the glorification of seppuku, apparently a popular Taiheki battle cry was, let each man fight until the hilt of his sword breaks and let each slit his belly at the end. I really tried to get Gerard Butler in here to say that, but uh, scheduling didn't really work out. But uh, anyway, the Taiheiki also indicates that uh, dealing a death blow to someone committing seppuku like what you'd expect from a Kaishaku was not done at that time, possibly due to the negative association with beheadings and the head-viewing ceremony. So Kaishaku weren't a thing back then. So you basically cut your guts, and maybe that's what all the pulling out and throwing of guts was about, to try to die faster. I don't know. And then once we move on to the 15th century, the war tales get really nutty when it comes to rampant stomach-cutting. Uh, as an example, we have the Tale of the Akamatsu. So the uh, Akamatsu clan was a powerful Muromachi family, and Akamatsu Mitsusuke, who was basically known for his on-again, off-again rebellions against the bakufu, uh, sealed his fate with some Game of Thrones shit. So the story goes that Shogun Ashikagan Yoshinori went on a campaign against the Yuki family of northern Hitachi province. And on his return, Akamatsu Mitsusuke invited the Shogun for a celebratory feast and celebration at his Kyoto residence. And the shogun accepted the invitation. So, just picture the scene. Parties going down in the garden of the residence. dancers, tea masters, blackened teeth and shaved eyebrows abound. Shogun Yoshinori sitting at the head of the table, he shared rice and salt with the Akumatsu clan, but he notices the manchita and Kote under Mitsusuke's kimono. Before he can react, horses are let loose from their stables through the garden, in the ensuing mayhem, the shogun and his attendants are cut down, and then the Akamatsu men gather their horses and head home. Now, this assassination, understandably, caused shock in Kyoto, and eventually a coalition of warriors from the Yamana, Hosokawa, and Hatakeyama families banded together and headed for Akamatsu lands. Apparently, the Hosokawa and Hatakeyama hesitated at the border, but the Yamana clan, led by the bold Yamana Sozen, entered Akamatsu lands and sieged Akamatsu Castle. But the Yamana clan, led by the bold Yamana Sozen, entered Akumatsu lands and sieged the Akamatsu. So according to the war tales, and again, keep in mind these are war tales, the fighting was bloody, and the Akumatsu warriors cut their stomachs and hurled their guts at charging enemies. Archers who ran out of arrows started throwing their guts around, presumably to minimal effect. And finally, Akumatsu Mitsusuke cut his stomach, followed by his loyal band of 69 followers. Oh, but that's not all. So one last loyal retainer, let's call him number 70, climbs the castle wall wearing a flamboyant cherry pattern kimono, where he makes a brief speech to the attacking soldiers. He then leaps off the wall, kills a bunch of the enemy, has a duel with the enemy champion, kills the enemy champion, climbs back up the castle wall, taunts the enemy army again, cuts his stomach open, He hurls his guts at the enemy below, and no, there's more. He goes back inside the castle, he finds the dead Mitsusuke, sets fire to the chamber, and he lays his head on Mitsusuke's corpse and cuts his own throat. that's some epic shit. Now obviously this is probably all made up, but anyway, that's the kind of stuff you find in a war tale. And, uh, you know, as should be apparent, at least in the Japanese mind, an epic seppuku is considered a win during this period. I guess it's all part of the Japanese love for the tragic hero. Check out the book The Nobility of Failure by Ivan Morris for more on Japan's love affair with tragic heroes. Okay, so based on these war tales, you'd think that everyone is just looking for an excuse to commit seppuku, and some people were all in when it came down to it, but uh, others not so much. During the Onin War, uh, one general told his men they'd pretend to cut their stomachs and then get back into position and surprise the enemy. Uh, I'm not sure of the logistics of that whole situation, but anyway... Uh, others opt for death in battle rather than just cutting the stomach, which seems a better idea to me. So obviously on this note, you have the samurai that dons his lord's armor and charges into battle to certain death to give his lord enough time to escape. And I could be wrong, but I feel like someone did this for Motonari. But at least in the Taiga drama, so maybe it never happened. I don't know, but that does come to mind for some reason. Although another historical example of this Sort of seppuku fakeout is when Murakami Yoshiteru takes the armor and kimono from Prince Morinaga during the Battle of Yoshino Castle in 1332. So, in grand samurai fashion, he climbed a tower and announced to the enemy that he was Morinaga, and then gutted himself. And in again, in typical war tales fashion, throws his guts against the wall, and then he stuck a sword in his mouth and fell on it. But uh, all this bought Prince Morinaga enough time to escape. Now, seppuku actually also had a another purpose. It was used by usurpers to take over clans. So, in other words, forcing your lord to commit seppuku to get him out of the way so that you can take over. And uh, this was actually apparently easier on the conscience than just outright killing the guy. A Sengoku example of this would be Sue Harukata, overthrowing Oji Yoshitaka. Rather than assassinate him, he had him commit seppuku, and everyone was pretty much okay with it. It's almost as if Oji Yoshitaka's committing seppuku was basically him resigning as head of the clan rather than being overthrown. But Yoshitaka was a bit of a lazy slacker anyway, always kicking around his kemari ball and composing poetry and dyeing his teeth black. And in Yoshitaka's case, he had a kaishaku lop off his head. And uh, the reason I mention this is because the man who acted as Yoshitaka's kaishaku eventually cut his own stomach. And he did so in true samurai fashion, standing in front of Sue's forces. He basically cut his stomach in a cross shape, pulled out his guts and flung them around and stabbed himself in the throat. Again, gut throwing. It was a thing. Moving on a little bit to house codes, the house laws of Uesugi Kenshin listed as punishment for various offenses, quote, confiscation of family swords and loss of samurai status. And in fact, this is considered a more severe form of punishment than seppuku. So a samurai would much rather cut their stomach open as punishment and presumably fling their guts about than give up their family status and swords. And actually, apparently one troublesome samurai who was completely dispossessed in this way by Kenshin appealed to get his sentence reduced to seppuku, and this reduction was granted, and his family was allowed to keep their status, and he was fortunate enough to be allowed to cut his stomach and maybe even toss his guts. And in Kumamoto, where Kato Kiyomasa ruled the domain, he had a three-strikes rule, which basically said uh, if you have three consecutive offenses, regardless of magnitude or seriousness, you committed seppuku. So suffice it to say, his samurai were renowned for their impeccable conduct. All right, and, and since we're on the subject again of seppuku as punishment, seppuku actually wasn't used as punishment until 1438. Shogun Yoshinori, uh, basically the same shogun who got red wedding to buy Akumatsu Mitsusuke, got tired of Ashikaga Mochiyuji claiming to be the rightful heir to the shogunate and causing various shenanigans. So Yoshinori sent an attack force to get him. Yoshinori decided to have him commit seppuku, and the idea of using it as a punitive measure was born. And it should be noted, I think this is important, that uh, seppuku's punishment didn't take away any of the honor of the act, as one might expect. Voluntary or involuntary, seppuku was basically still seen as equally honorable. And in fact, this ramped way up during the Edo period, where there were hundreds of seppuku punishments carried out per year, and in many cases for what would seem like trivial reasons. So with the Edo period and the end of the civil wars, samurai no longer had much of a way to show off their martial honor, their valor, their uniqueness even other than by pulling open their jackets and gunning themselves. I mean, honestly, they basically embraced Bushido ideals and stomach cutting to justify their existence, at least partially. So it became popular. Seppuku basically gave them something to set themselves apart from the peasants, aside from the swords and the cleanliness. So in a way, you could probably say that the code of Bushido and the obsession with seppuku was there as a way to keep the samurai in line. I mean, we've talked about it before on the podcast, but of course you want your samurai to be loyal, so you're going to play up all these ideals that you want them to follow, obviously. And the uh, idea of samurai committing seppuku at the drop of a hat is really not all that far off in reality. War tales constantly show descriptions of samurai committing seppuku basically at the drop of a hat. And it also became, at least for the bakufu, a more honorable method of execution. I mean, unwashed millet-grubbing farmers didn't get to cut their stomachs. They were forced to face a dirty commoner's death by beheading. So seppuku was basically a privilege of the samurai class. I mean, yeah, I'd rather be a commoner in this scenario, but whatever. An illustration of the samurai attitude towards seppuku as punishment is Takechi Zuizang. He was an anti-bakufu assassin, basically, and had been convicted of, and, and this is a direct quote, impudence towards a daimyo, which is odd. You have been found guilty of impudence. All right, whatever, man. Anyway, he was interrogated and confined at length, And when given the news that he'd be allowed to commit seppuku, he cried tears of joy that he wouldn't be beheaded like the common scum and villainy of the Edo period. And during his seppuku, he successfully made three horizontal cuts. Sanmonji. I guess to celebrate being allowed to cut his stomach? He was so happy he did it three times? I don't know. Anyway, uh, in regards to executions during the Edo period, it appears that of the thousands of executions a month, And that's thousands, with a -A (laughs) T-H-O-U-S-A-N-D-S. Only a small percentage of these were actual seppuku. So it seems to be a bit of a reserved honor, but I also have to assume that most of these thousands of executions were commoners and not samurai. I mean, otherwise I feel like Japan would have eventually run out, but... I don't know. So seppuku's punishment throughout the Edo period was pretty popular, but it was eventually phased out in the 1860s. Basically, throughout the 1860s, there were attacks carried out on Westerners in Japan by zealous anti-foreign factions of samurai. And so each time a samurai killed a foreigner, he'd be sentenced to die via seppuku. Uh, And oh, it was so not a deterrent. They were totally into it. They were so into it, in fact, that it turned out that once it was clearly stated that any samurai attacking a foreigner would in fact not be allowed seppuku, but would be beheaded like a simple mud-harvesting peasant attacks on foreigners stopped. Uh, The samurai kept up seppuku for other reasons, but being handed down as a sentence was basically being phased out. The final judicial punishment of seppuku was carried out in 1870. Two rival houses clashed in Tokushima, which resulted in an attack that left 20 dead and more injured. And the authorities handed out various punishments from banishment to jail time, but with the 10 ringleaders to be beheaded, like dirty commoners. So, to help relieve tensions between the houses, the house that had actually been attacked, that had been wronged, petitioned for seppuku instead of beheading, and it was granted, allowing the ten ringleaders to die with honor intact. And actually, unlike most of the seppuku punishments of the later Edo period, they weren't given ceremonial fans. Each man cut his stomach, like a man. And that was it. Last legal seppuku punishment. And this was actually an exception. Like I mentioned, it was originally slated to be simple execution, um, but they were allowed to commit seppuku. But uh, lawmakers officially removed seppuku as a punishment for good in 1871, or at least sometime between 1871 and 1873. I think debates may have gone on for a bit, but suffice it to say, the last judicial punishment was 1870, and by no later than 1873, it was completely removed from the books as punishment. So there you go, the history of seppuku from the beginning to the end. So now that we've covered that, actually what I want to do is I want to look at the psychology of suicide and seppuku, and in particular, sort of our modern view of suicide and how it really doesn't match up with the samurai. Some of you might be wondering why I'm even looking at this, but uh, I feel like the best way to show how alien seppuku is to our modern understanding of human behavior is to look at, well, our modern understanding of human behavior. I'm pretty sure I mentioned this on the podcast at some point, but I I actually just completed graduate school in psychology, or more specifically, clinical psychology, falls under the rubric of clinical mental health counseling, Um, but essentially clinical psychology. I did my practicum at the acute psychiatric unit of a major metropolitan hospital, so basically, I worked with people who were actively and acutely psychotic. I mean, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, major depressive disorder with psychotic features, It really ran the gamut of mental disorders, and it was awesome. But anyway, so my area of expertise is psychopathology, uh, so basically severe mental illness. And I've also put in hours and hours of reading on suicide, and that was part of my study. So I don't consider myself an expert on suicide, but I consider myself quite familiar with it. But uh, as I get into this, I think you'll see it, and I kind of mentioned it, but pretty much our entire modern perspective on suicide is that it's done almost exclusively by people with mental illness. So our entire modern construct of suicide theory really doesn't account for samurai suicide. You really have to dig deep to find parallels. Fortunately for you, that's what I've done. And uh, But this, this way of viewing suicide as stemming from psychopathology really doesn't hold when it comes to seppuku. Psychiatric illness played no part that we know of anyway in samurai suicide. Except possibly tangentially, but I'll I'll, I'll get to that. Uh, But, you know, in in Japan at the time, it was considered a legitimate and laudable undertaking reinforced by cultural tradition. Now, before I get into that, uh, we really need to understand the modern Western conception of suicide. Dr. Thomas Joyner, from the clip I played earlier, came up with what is called the interpersonal theory of suicide. And this is probably the most popular and well-known theory right now. Uh, At least it's the one that I came across constantly in grad school, and it really makes good conceptual sense. So first I'll give you the actual hypothesis, and then I'll break it down kind of as I go. So I'm going to read some of this verbatim, so forgive the lecture mode here, but I think it's effective to kind of give you the theoretical underpinnings of this whole theory. So there are four points here that we hit on. The first one being thwarted belongingness and perceived burdensomeness are proximal and sufficient causes of passive suicidal ideation. So what does that mean? Basically, interpersonal isolation, being unable to connect with others, coupled with perceived burdensomeness, basically meaning that you feel that you're a burden on other people around you or that they'd be better off without you. So that's kind of the first point, or the first key to pulling off a successful suicide, I guess I should say. I mean, that sounds kind of a disturbing way to put it, but anyway. Now, the second point of the theory is The simultaneous presence of thwarted belongingness and perceived burdensomeness when perceived as stable and unchanging, i.e. hopelessness regarding these states. This is a proximal and sufficient cause of active suicidal desire. So to break it down, you feel a lack of belongingness, and you feel that you're a burden on others, and you don't believe this will ever change. So that's when you start having active thoughts of suicide Point number three is the simultaneous presence of suicidal desire and lowered fear of death serves as the condition under which suicidal desire will transform into suicidal intent. In other words, and this is important, you need to acquire the ability to cause lethal self-injury. And then point number four is basically the end result. The outcome of serious suicidal behavior, i.e. lethal or near-lethal suicide attempts, is most likely to occur in the context of thwarted belongingness, perceived burdensomeness, hopelessness regarding both, reduced fear of suicide, and elevated physical pain tolerance. Okay, so that's the theory at its most basic, the four points. So in the the modern Western construct of suicide, the desire to kill oneself comes from a lack of belongingness, perceived burdensomeness, hopelessness about these two things, and then on top of that, once you've gained the thoughts of suicide, you need to actually acquire the ability to cause self-harm. So in other words, and this might be kind of odd, but the desire to die is actually separate from the ability to actually kill yourself. So the obvious question here is, how does one gain the ability to cause lethal self-injury? And actually, this is particularly important when we talk about seppuku. But as you'll see, this, this modern concept of suicide isn't really effective in explaining samurai suicide. It's It just doesn't, and I'll I'll get into why. But uh, at first, the most basic level. So, with our modern conception of suicide theory, to die by suicide, you basically need to lose the fear associated with suicidal behaviors. Uh, So, you know, in other words, you're you're really not going to find someone born with an innate ability to engage in severe self-injury. Fear, fear of things, and fear of injury is basically an evolutionary survival mechanism. I mean, that should be obvious. If you're born without fear, you get eaten by the first cave bear or I don't know, giant ground sloth you come across, or you get stepped on by a mastodon, whatever. Either way, you're not reproducing. So the theory goes, only the humans who fear injury and death reproduce. So fear is, I guess you'd say genetic. So you basically need to habituate yourself to this fear or unlearn this fear of injury and death. And then, so in addition to the lower fear of injury or death, you also need, of course, an increased pain tolerance And so the ability for self-harm comes from habituation in response to repeated exposure to physically painful or even fear-inducing experiences. This actually comes from things like traumatic injury, witnessing traumatic injury, experiencing warfare, or combat experience. And actually, studies also, interestingly enough, show that combat training alone is considered a factor that lowers fear of injury or death. Which kind of makes sense because that's you're you're trying to get your soldiers to do what you want under extreme circumstances, but uh, you know out of all of these combat exposure is considered to be a relatively direct path, which, you know, might actually account for some of the pre Edo period stomach cutting, some of the Sengoku period stomach cutting, because, I mean, simply stated, the more you get used to pain, the more you get used to fear, the more you get used to violence, the the less you fear it. So in other words, or obviously, after repeated exposures, things that were originally painful and scary become less painful, less scary. Uh, and in fact, actual and aborted suicide attempts also work towards accomplishing this ability to enact lethal self-injury. Um, for example, think Martin Riggs and Lethal Weapon. I- I'm not talking about the TV show. I mean, I don't know. I haven't seen it. But uh, if you haven't seen the original Lethal Weapon, by the way, this is where you pause the podcast and uh, put it at the top of your Netflix queue, right there above the original Harakiri. Anyway, now also it should be noted that uh, all this doesn't mean that these traumatic events aren't psychologically damaging because obviously a lot of people end up with PTSD. And in fact, PTSD adds to these feelings of isolation that Dr. Joyner talks about. Another interesting point, uh, which I should mention, is that this habituation to fear and pain and the ability to enact lethal self-injury isn't reversible based on at least one study I read Once you've gotten to the point that you have habituated to the fear and pain of death and actually gained the ability to cause lethal self-harm, it's permanent. You can't unlearn that. You can't relearn fear. It just isn't fearful anymore. So I I guess kind of the point here is that, and and obviously this is just across the board, you should always pay attention if someone says they want to die. So definitely not downplaying that. But generally speaking, and this this is a generality, uh, the biggest risk is the people who have experienced significant trauma, because that has that sort of edges them towards the ability to cause self-harm. Uh, now, to draw a picture, uh, well, with words, Joyner and his buddies put together a Venn diagram. So basically, a Venn diagram is two circles that inter- intersect, and then there's a center portion. So they put together a Venn diagram of circles with a big left circle, which is thwarted belongingness. I mean, you can draw this on a piece of paper if you want to follow along, but... Left circle, the big portion, is thwarted belongingness. The right circle is called perceived burdensomeness, which we've talked about. Now, this middle overlapping area is desire for suicide. So when you have, so in other words, as it's illustrated, when you have thwarted belongingness and perceived burdensomeness together, you get the desire for suicide. And now, add to this Venn diagram a third smaller circle intersecting both at the bottom. I call this one capability for suicide the people who actually have the ability to cause self-harm. So where all three of these circles intersect, this little space here is where you find lethal or near lethal suicide attempts. And uh, so what we mean, or what I guess I should say Joiner means by near lethal suicide attempts is that these are basically suicide attempts where the person survives purely by chance, like someone jumping off the golden gate bridge, but surviving. So in other words, they went in fully expecting to die and Pure chance is the only thing that saved them. So in other words, these aren't the cry for help people. And uh, well, you know, actually, if you, have an, if you have an interest in this topic, and it's, it is interesting. I mean, um, it's, it's useful too. I mean, unfortunately. But uh, I'd recommend you check out Thomas Joyner on YouTube. Uh, there's a few lectures up there by him. But uh, one in particular that I found that I really liked and actually took that clip from is Why Do People Die by Suicide? This is the one I recommend. And then you can kind of go down the rabbit hole from there. I'll put it up on the podcast website or maybe somewhere else along with all of the 30 or 40 resources I used for this podcast. Either way, you'll find it either directly at com, or you'll find the link to where I put it at com. So either way, it'll all be accessible. And so the reason I went through all of this is to basically give you an understanding of what our current theory of suicide is and to kind of illustrate how it really doesn't help when trying to understand seppuku. I mean, it makes it a little bit more enigmatic, in fact. But I mean, that being said, in defense of modern psychology, there is a really simple reason for this. Clinically, it's all treatment and prevention oriented. You want to prevent suicide and you want to treat its causes. I mean, obviously, seppuku just isn't a problem in the modern world and doesn't require treatment, so prognosticating on seppuku serves no real purpose in clinical application. Although, you know, I should mention that there are a few articles that tackle it theoretically that I was able to find but for the most part, the only clinical articles you'll find involved modern disembowelment by crazy people. And in fact, in a lot of time, often, most psychiatrists and Joyner himself state that mental illness is present in nearly 100% of suicides. And, you know, honestly, just between me and you, I don't know if that's political correctness talking or if he really believes that. But he also states that most illnesses are not associated with higher than normal suicide rates. Although rates are much higher for people with AIDS, although, you know, it's 2017, I feel like AIDS is more of an inconvenience than anything at this point. But anyway, uh, other things, brain cancer, multiple sclerosis. So interestingly, he, he sort of willfully ignores the pain and loss of quality of life and instead throws out a guess that suicide attempts in these people also come from social isolation due to the illness and some sort of comorbid mental illness. And comorbid meaning occurring with. That's the term that we use in psychology. So anyway, it seems to me just a little disingenuous, but, you know, I haven't studied it nearly to the extent that he has, so don't take my word for it. But, you know, I guess overall point being that taking responsibility for one's death into their own hands is really an alien concept to us. Maybe aside from euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide, but even that, I still feel like that's probably looked on negatively. So I guess people just can't comprehend the act of suicide outside of mental illness or possibly or maybe even more likely at least in the case of psychology you know opening the door for this so-called rational suicide is considered too dangerous or taboo to allow so they just kind of conveniently chalk it up to mental illness i'm not sure i mean i'm basically just looking at it from the case of the samurai not looking at it in the case of some sort of rational suicide of a person in the modern world because it's it's harder to justify but there you go seppuku is a pretty alien concept to modern psychology said it before say it again Humans living in different cultures and different times experience the world and reality in wildly different ways. And so, you know, on on some level we can abstractly understand that committing seppuku involves the pain, courage, and resolve, but I don't think it's possible for us to understand how a samurai experienced seppuku in a reality where, at least by the Edo period, seppuku was carried out hundreds of times a year effectively, probably in most cases as a preferred way to die. So they were experiencing a reality where, I mean, literally, Cutting your stomach open wasn't some horrifying experience to be feared and avoided. And that's the way we'd understand it. That's the way I understand it. But they looked at it as the highest act one could accomplish as a samurai. Basically something to be revered. So it's it's a completely different concept. And don't think I'm going to let modern psychology off the hook. I actually dug deeper to see if I could find something that would explain samurai suicide. So we actually have to go back a bit to the 19th century polymath and sociologist Emil Durkheim to find a better theory to account for seppuku. So Emil Durkheim was one of those classic 19th century scholars who dabbled in all sorts of diverse disciplines, but he's mostly known for his contributions to sociology, and for my purposes here, his book Suicide, which by the way is an immense book, comes in at over 400 pages, but uh, I found it absolutely fascinating. And I'll admit I only read two chapters of it, but it was really interesting. So Durkheim postulates four types of suicide, anomic suicide, egoistic suicide, fatalistic suicide and altruistic suicide. So let me go into lecture mode here for a moment while I read you the basic descriptions. Anomic suicide occurs when a person experiences anomie, a sense of disconnection from society and a feeling of not belonging that results from weakened social cohesion. Anomie occurs during periods of serious social, economic, or political upheaval, which results in quick and extreme changes to society and everyday life. In such circumstances, a person might feel so confused and disconnected that they choose to commit suicide. Okay, so I find this one interesting because, in a way, the samurai were an interesting opposite to this. They were, in fact, so socially integrated into their roles. And part of this role was seppuku. So if you look at it from a psychopathological standpoint, which doesn't really work, but it's just a thought experiment, the pathology is that they have bought in too hard into their own social roles as basically the guys who commit seppuku. So that's also sort of the problem with the concept of a pathology when it comes to psychology. Sometimes it really is partially culture-dependent. So next on Emil Durkheim's list is egoistic suicide. Now, egoistic suicide happens when people feel totally detached from society. Ordinarily, people are integrated into society by work roles, ties to family and community, and other social bonds. When these bonds are weakened through retirement or loss of family and friends, The likelihood of egoistic suicide increases. I think this roughly corresponds to Joyner's concept of suicide. The next type of suicide is fatalistic suicide. Now, this occurs under conditions of extreme social regulation that result in oppressive conditions and a denial of the self and of agency. In such a situation, a person may elect to die rather than continue enduring the oppressive conditions such as the case of suicide among prisoners. And lastly, we have altruistic suicide. Altruistic suicide happens when there is excessive regulation of individuals by social forces such that a person will be moved to kill themselves for the benefit of a cause or for society at large. In such social circumstances, people are so strongly integrated into social expectations and society itself that they will kill themselves in an effort to achieve collected goals. So I think you can guess that this is the one that is closest to the culture of seppuku. So let me read you an excerpt straight out of Durkheim's book. Um, I've edited it for brevity. And uh, sadly, I can't fake a French accent. So just pretend I'm a 19th century French scholar and I'll do my best. Altruistic suicide, on the contrary, involves a certain expenditure of energy since its source is a violent emotion. In the case of obligatory suicide, this energy is controlled by the reason and the will. This individual kills himself at the command of his conscience. He submits to an imperative. Thus, the dominant note of his act is the serene conviction derived from the feeling of duty accomplished. This is seen in the primitive man or medieval soldier who kill themselves either for a slight offense to their honor or to prove their courage. The ease with which they are performed is not to be confused with the disillusionment and matter-of-factness of the Epicurean. The disposition to sacrifice one's life is nonetheless an active tendency even though it is strongly enough embedded to be affected with the ease and spontaneity of instinct. A case which may be considered the model of this species is reported by Leroy. It concerns an officer who, after having once unsuccessfully tried to hang himself, prepares to make another attempt but first takes care to record his last impressions. Mine is a strange destiny. I have just hung myself, had lost consciousness, the rope broke, I fell on my left arm. My new preparations are complete. I shall start again shortly, but shall smoke a final pipe first. The last, I hope. I experienced no struggle with my feelings the first time. Things went very well. I hope the second will go as well. I am as calm as though I were taking an early morning glass. It's strange, I will confess, but it is so. It is all true. I am about to die a second time with perfect tranquillity. Underneath this tranquility is neither irony nor skepticism, nor the sort of involuntary wincing which the voluptuary never quite manages completely to hide when committing suicide. The man's calmness is perfect. There is no trace of effort. The action is straightforward because all the vital inclinations prepare his course. So I think you can see the pretty obvious correlation between Durkheim's theory of altruistic suicide and seppuku. And so... In a way, I think you can start to see why the samurai didn't need to habituate to the fear of injury and death to the extent that we do in the modern world. Basically, seppuku is socially accepted, the samurai get great benefit from it socially and potentially in the afterlife, and in addition to the social acceptance, there is the social pressure for seppuku. And actually, here's another section from Durkheim to elaborate on this. Now, when a person kills himself, it is not because he assumes the right to do so, but on the contrary, because it is his duty. If he fails in this obligation, he is dishonoured. Of course, when we hear of aged men killing themselves, we are tempted at first to believe that the cause is weariness or the sufferings common to age. But if these suicides really had no other source, if the individual made away with himself merely to be rid of an unendurable existence, he would not be required to do so. One is never obliged to take advantage of a privilege. Now, we have seen that if such a person insists on living, he loses public respect. In one case, the usual funeral honors are denied. In another, a life of horror is supposed to await him beyond the grave. The weight of society is thus brought to bear on him to lead himself to destroy himself. To be sure, society intervenes in egoistic suicide as well. But its intervention differs in the two cases. In one case, it speaks to the sentence of death. In the other, it forbids the choice of death. In the case of egoistic suicide, it suggests or counsels at most... In the other case, it compels and is the author of conditions and circumstances making this obligation coercive. This sacrifice, then, is imposed by society for social ends. If the follower must not survive his chief or the servant his prince, this is because so strict an interdependence between followers and chiefs, officers and king, is involved in the constitution of the society that any thought of separation is out of the question. The destiny of one must be that of the other's subjects as well as clothing and armor must follow their master wherever he goes, even beyond the tomb. If another possibility were to be admitted, social subordination would be inadequate. And there you have it. So the uh, chapter on altruistic suicide is about 27 pages long and goes into deep detail about warrior cultures and cultural beliefs and religions that despise the idea of dying of old age or illness. So it's definitely worth a read if you're interested in the samurai. And actually, I'd say in particular, if you are a student or scholar, basically in the interest of interdisciplinary study. As you can see, I'm a big fan of interdisciplinary work. And so, Durkheim isn't the only one that kind of makes this correlation. I, I should also mention Toyoma Fuse, in his article called A Study of Seppuku as an Institutionalized Form of Suicide, basically backs this up. He states that seppuku was a part of Japan's socio-cultural tradition and as a positively sanctioned role behavior in hierarchical organizations as well as in highly formal and tightly knit human groups and classes. He basically goes on to say that seppuku is a response to a continued need for social recognition resulting from a narcissistic preoccupation with the self in respect to status and role. The social role of the samurai becomes the ultimate meaning of their lives and mistakes or upheavals that may change, reduce, or lose that role. They can't contemplate continuing life in the altered role, so they end it. So basically you have a society and culture that promotes suicide as the ideal and actually places pressure on that as the ideal. So our modern conception of suicide theory doesn't really cover it, but it isn't necessarily as fearful an act for the samurai as it is for a modern person, because it's part of the culture. It's part of the experience of being a samurai, and it's also obviously the ideal. So the will to do it may overcome the fear of doing it, if that makes sense. So at this point, you you may or may not, I guess, (laughs) be wondering about the role that religion plays in all this, so... Interestingly, based on what I've read anyway, Buddhism never directly addressed seppuku. There aren't any Buddhist writings about Buddhism's position on seppuku. I found that extremely interesting. Um, I'm kind of generalizing here. So if you follow a particular brand of Buddhism that doesn't quite match up with this, forgive me. Um, I'm kind of taking bit piecemeal things that I've, I've kind of read in various academic journals. But normally the Buddhist view of suicide is that this is a craving for annihilation and it's considered negative and additionally has repercussions for rebirth. But despite this, there are also various myths of people committing suicide, and the Buddha lets them reach nirvana anyway. So one example that I found is the monk Godika, which I'm assuming is an Indian name. I mean, it's not Japanese anyway, but their spiritual progress was hampered by illness. And this illness and inability to progress spiritually resulted in frustration for Godika. So Godika cut his own throat, which... I'm assuming, is so that he can kind of start over with his next life to kind of try and get it right because he, f- he was unable to accomplish it in this life. And so, assuming that's his motivation, the Buddha looked at that and appreciated it and let him attain nirvana. So it might be that the Buddha appreciates when someone kills themselves for some spiritual ideal, I guess. I'm not really sure on the specific circumstances that result in nirvana. So that's not my area of expertise, but uh, it seems to be tied to a non-concern with death or trying to achieve a spiritual ideal in one way or another rather than actual self-destructive behaviors. Because like I said, self-destructive behaviors are not considered a good thing in Buddhism. I mean, you know, obviously i mentioned this before that there's that situation of monks setting them on fire in an altruistic show of support for a cause. And since they are Buddhist monks and they're engaging in that, I kind of have to assume that that's considered okay by the Buddha. But uh, in the case of seppuku specifically, It might be that it absolves the samurai of the shame or guilt accompanied by defeat or an act of wrongdoing. Well, I guess to them it does, but maybe that's appreciated by the afterlife. And uh, so it might be that this is a fitting way for the samurai to meet his end because of the pain and effort associated with cutting through the stomach as a, and I quote, display of the austere self-mortification prized in Zen Buddhism. I, I don't remember exactly where that quote's from, but it fits. Now, apparently in Japan's mythology, the early religion was life-affirming and portrayed the afterlife as a dark and scary place, basically a place to avoid. And I'm not exactly sure where this comes from. I, I did read that. Joseph, who I talked to about this, mentioned that maybe it's in the Kojiki or the Nihon Shoki, but he wasn't sure. But anyway, when Buddhism was introduced to Japan in the 6th century, it replaced a more positive religion, at least that's what we're told, with a more pessimistic one. And, you know, again, I don't want to talk out of turn here, But it seems to me that at least Japanese Buddhist teaching assumes that human life is transitory, full of illusion, suffering, misery, austerity is good, material comforts should be rejected. So, I mean, and and, and then, of course, once it's all over, you're reborn. So, I don't know. But in a way, Buddhism seems a little death oriented or at least pushing you in that direction. And then I guess, um, you know, mixing in Zen philosophy along with it could have possibly led samurai to basically embrace a death cult. I'm just throwing that out there. I mean, what's the contrast? Medieval European knights. Uh, Stephen Murillo wrote an article called Cultures of Death, Warrior Suicide in Europe and Japan that basically looks at this, or I should say looks at the contrast between medieval European knights and samurai. So one point he makes about the European knights is that although they were the spiritual descendants, I think that's the term he used, Uh, maybe you didn't, but uh, essentially they're the spiritual descendants of the Roman soldiers. But despite this, the concept of falling on your sword was completely removed. And uh, according to Murillo, Christianity in Europe was a major factor, or I guess I should say one of many, in many of the differences between the samurai and the knight. So for European knights, capturing rather than killing enemy soldiers was more of the norm. So basically they had a prisoner-taking culture, whereas the samurai did not have that prisoner-taking culture. And he also mentions that for the European knights, uh, suicide was considered cowardly. But probably the most important point that he makes is there's two two parts here. So first off, no knight wanted to be killed in battle without having their sins forgiven, uh, or at least not being given the opportunity to perform any penance that was required, which seems to have also been a, a factor in the prisoner taking culture. They want that opportunity for themselves. So they're willing to give that opportunity to the enemy. Whereas I guess in Buddhism, you just kind of get reborn and get another chance to get it right. And then the second point that Murillo makes about suicide with the European knight is that from a religious standpoint, the knight didn't have the right to take their God-given life. So I guess it was more like they leave it up to God, leave it up to fate, something along those lines. I mean, I honestly don't know much about European knights, so you're going to have to take Murillo's word on all this. I'm just repeating what he said. And, you know, another interesting point that Murillo makes, and you see a lot of in Japanese history and based on Morello, presumably in European history, that a lot of warriors who don't get killed in battle finish off their lives as monks. And this is presumably to atone for all of the sinning and killing that they did as warriors. So they actually do have that in common. And you know, I think that's about all I got. Oh, you know what? Actually, let me leave you with the wise words of Zen monk Toko, who left his final thoughts in the form of a haiku. I'll do my best Japanese monk voice. Jisei and in English, death poems are mere delusion. Death is death. And there you have it. The first and hopefully many Tales of the Samurai episodes that will be coming out. And again, I want to thank the uh, supporters on Patreon. You guys are what made this happen. You guys gave me the motivation to actually put in hours and hours of research for this episode. And, you know, to everyone else, if you like this episode, consider contributing. Even a dollar an episode really helps the podcast. A mere dollar an episode—that's pennies a day, a fraction of the cost to feed a hungry third-world child. So consider donation. <laughs> All right, but you know, again, it really helps. It really helps. It really motivates me, and it everything goes to help make the podcast better. I already got that new microphone, which I hope you've enjoyed. And again, I'll have a list of all of the sources that I used, either at SamuraiPodcast.com on the page for this episode, or I'll have a link to where you can find it. Either way, it'll be there. And also, if if actually donating money to the podcast is beyond your means, which is understandable, and you use iTunes, consider giving us a favorable review. All right, so I guess that's pretty much it. So I just want to uh, give out a special thanks to Tom Davidson, who played the part of Ernest Sato. Appreciate it. Add a little flavor to the podcast. Also, a thanks to Travis and to Joseph who contributed to this episode by helping me find some information. And be sure to follow us at Samurai Archives on Twitter. And hit us up at the Facebook page. You can find it pretty easily with a search for Samurai Archives. And feel free to follow me on Xbox. Subtle Eel 4. Basically, Subtle Eel and the number 4. If you don't know how to spell subtle, can't help you out. And lastly, a shout-out to Miss Fitzsimmons, our one female listener. Kept the rambling to a minimum just for you. That's it for this episode. I hope you liked it, because it took me a long time to put it together. And it's going to be a nightmare to edit. So that's it. Catch you next time.
0: っていう Give